Well, this morning we are continuing in the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 3, as we began last week, talking about the marks of a true Christian. This morning we're continuing in chapter 3. We'll be looking at verses 4 through 7. And so I would encourage you to open your Bibles and follow along as I read our passage for us. But to set the context here, I'm going to begin in verse 1. Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh. If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. Whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Many people today in our world, they write their own biographies. Why do they write their own bios, biographies? Why do they do that? Well, because they want people to know something about themselves. They want other people to know about them. In fact, listen to one bio that I read recently about a pastor on the back of his book. It said this, he is the lead pastor of his church. He's known for calling people to do one thing, passionately pursue Jesus Christ. He started and or developed four thriving churches in America. Globally, he has shared the gospel with over five million people helped train over 50,000 pastors in expository preaching, and partnered to establish over 100 churches in Africa. He also leads a ministry which is named after himself. And then he goes on to give his academic credentials and his family life. And many people would look at a bio like that And they would say, wow, this guy has done a lot for the kingdom of God. Well, Paul had a bio like that. In fact, in Paul's time, living as a Jew, his bio was even greater than that pastor's. I mean, look at all the accomplishments that he's achieved in verses 5 and 6. Notice what he says there. Circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, and even as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. 
I mean, this guy had reached the top. His achievements were incredible. And any Jew reading a bio like that would stop and they would go, Wow, Paul, you are amazing. You've really done it all. But the thing is, Paul doesn't write this autobiographical section here in Philippians chapter 3 to boast in himself. Instead, he writes it to show how worthless all of his achievements are. In fact, if you look at verse 7, notice what Paul says there. He uses some accounting terms. Notice verse 7, But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. You see these accounting terms here, gain and loss, and then he uses a mathematical term, they're counted. And what Paul does here is he lists out all of his achievements and takes them from the gain column, all of the things that he has gained, and he puts them over into the loss column. Everything that he's gained in his life, he says, it's now over in the lost column. Now why would he do that? Why would Paul do something like that? Well, if you remember from last week, Paul told the Philippians in verse 2, beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. Who were these dogs? These evil workers, those of the false circumcision, who were these guys? This was was the Judaizers. They were the Judaizers. And the Judaizers taught that salvation was by faith plus works. Salvation by faith plus circumcision and obedience to the law of Moses. Faith plus works. And they thought that their achievements had somehow gained them favor with God. And listen, most people today in the world believe this. Most people believe this. Most people in our world today believe that they will get to heaven by some good works. Because all religion outside of biblical Christianity teaches that you can get to heaven by your good works. All religions. They teach that. In fact, the Roman Catholic Church even teaches that atheists can get into heaven. Listen to what the Roman Catholic Catechism says. It says this, Those who, through no fault of their own, do not know the gospel of Christ or His church, but who nevertheless seek God with a sincere heart and moved by grace, listen to this, try in their actions to do His will as they know it through the dictates of their conscience, those two may achieve eternal salvation. It's directly from the Roman Catholic Catechism. It's what they teach in the Roman Catholic Church. In fact, one priest even applies this to atheists, and he basically says that if atheists are good, they can achieve salvation. Without the gospel. 
they can achieve salvation. And that's what all religion teaches. All religion teaches that you have to do something good in order to inherit eternal life, in order to get into heaven. So, if you were to ask people who are a part of these religions why God should allow them into heaven, they would say something like this. Well, because I believe I'm a good person. That's what they believe. Where do they get this belief from? Well, not from the Bible, right? They didn't get it from God's Word because God says that who is good? No one. No, not one. Not a single person is good. So they obviously didn't get it from the Bible. Where did they get it from? They got it from their own sin nature. They got it from their own sin nature. They have believed the lie of Satan that tells them that they are good enough to get into heaven. And the reason for this, the reason why they would believe something like this, is because their minds are blinded. In fact, hold your finger in Philippians 3 and turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Let me show this to you. What God says about those who are very religious, but who are not saved, who are not born again believers. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, notice verse 3. Paul says this, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. What is he telling us here? Satan has blinded their minds so that they will not believe the truth. So that they will not realize and recognize that they are not good as Scripture teaches. You see, Satan is behind all false religion. He's behind all false religion. As John MacArthur says, the God of this world is Satan who controls the ideologies, opinions, hopes, aims, goals, and viewpoints in the world. He's behind the world system of philosophy, psychology, education, sociology, ethics, and economics. But perhaps his greatest influence is in the realm of false religion. The unbelievers' minds have been blinded by Satan. And because their minds are blinded, they are not able to see the light of the gospel. So what are they going to believe? They'll believe everything else but the gospel. They'll believe every other religion except for the truth of the gospel. And that means they'll believe the lies that says that they are good enough to get into heaven because that's what every religion teaches. 
In some form or fashion, the majority of the world today believes that they can work their way to heaven. That is their thinking. That's their mind. Turn back to Philippians 3. Notice what Paul does in Philippians 3. He actually challenges the minds of these unbelieving Judaizers. Those who think that circumcision and obedience to the law of Moses plays a role in their salvation. He challenges their thinking with his religious achievements. In fact, notice what he says in verse 4. He says, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far far more. Now look at his argument here. Notice what he says here. He's making an argument to these Judaizers. Look at what he says. At the end of verse 3, he says, we Christians put no confidence in the flesh. Zero. Zero confidence in our flesh. But then notice the change from we to I in verse 4 there. Notice there's a change from we to I. In verse 4 he says, although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh. Here's his argument. Look, we Christians don't put any confidence in our personal achievements. But if there is someone who could have confidence in their personal achievements, it's me. I'm it. I'm the man. I've reached the top. I've done it all. And as we're about to see, if there was anyone to put confidence in their flesh, the Apostle Paul could have walked around with his head held high as the MVP in Judaism. And he could have even looked down on these Judaizers who hadn't achieved all the things that the Apostle Paul had achieved in his life. Notice he says there, I myself might have, in verse 4. I myself might have. That verb, might have, in the Greek is in the present tense. Meaning that Paul still possessed his achievements. It's not that they all went away when he was saved. He couldn't stop being an Israelite. He couldn't stop being a Jew circumcised on the eighth day when he got saved. He had earned all of these achievements. He had done all of this. But he says as far as salvation is concerned, they mean absolutely nothing. Zero. Nothing. So why does he bring all these up? Well, he brings all of these up here for the sake of argument to show how ridiculous it is to put any confidence in your flesh to earn your salvation. And so he challenges their mind. He challenges their thinking against his list of achievements. And he basically says, if there is anyone who wants to challenge me against All that I have achieved, bring it on. Bring it on. Guaranteed, none of you Judaizers, you false teachers, have done more than what I've done. Bring it on. You see, 
Because Paul was blinded by Satan before he was born, his thinking was that he had to uphold the Torah, the law, that is the law, in order to earn his salvation. That was his thinking. But his mind has been changed. The blinders were taken off and he now understands and believes the true gospel. And in these next three verses here, we're going to see the mind of a true Christian. The mind of a true Christian. Last week we saw the marks of a true Christian. This morning we're going to see the mind of a true Christian as it relates to salvation. And what Paul does here is he lists seven reasons why he could have confidence in the flesh. If there was anyone to have confidence in the flesh, it was the Apostle Paul. And he gives seven reasons here why he could have confidence in his flesh. The first four that he lists there have to do with his inherited privileges. That is Paul's Jewish credentials. Things that Paul played no role in inheriting. He just inherited them. But then the next three have to do with his personal achievements, things which Paul did play a direct role in achieving. And so we're going to break this down into two simple points. Two simple points this morning. The first point is this. The mind of a true Christian denies personal pedigrees. The mind of a true Christian denies personal pedigrees. Look at verse 5. He says, Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Stop right there. Now as we work our way through these four achievements here, we're going to see Paul make a stronger and stronger argument for his pedigree. Notice that he begins this list with circumcision on the eighth day. He was circumcised on the eighth day. Now, since he was only eight days old when this happened to him, obviously he had no part in this, right? He had no part in it. But his parents were devout Jews who had him circumcised on the eighth day. Why? Why did his parents have him circumcised on the eighth day? Well, because they were obedient to the law. They wanted to be obedient to the law. Back in Genesis 17 and verse 12, God commanded Abraham and his descendants as a sign of the covenant with them to circumcise every boy on the eighth day. And then this was handed down to Moses as well. We read about it in Leviticus 12.3. Where it's reiterated to Moses again that all of the male boys on the eighth day were to be circumcised. We then see that even John the Baptist's parents upheld the law of Moses. And even Mary and Joseph had Jesus circumcised on the eighth day. And then Paul's parents followed the law and they did the same thing with Paul. As one commentator says, Paul's law righteousness began before he could personally will it to be so. He didn't have the will to do that. He didn't make the decision or make the choice. Somebody else did it to him. His parents made the choice for him. That's where his law righteousness began. 
even before Paul was able to uphold the law out of his own will, because of his parents, he was upholding the law. And for Paul to tell us that he was circumcised on the eighth day shows us that he was a very devout Jew. Of the Jews, he was of the sect that was the most devout. And it shows us he wasn't like all of the Jews. But he was like all the devout Jews. How does he show us that? Well, do you remember Abraham and his two sons? Who were they? Ishmael and Isaac. Ishmael and Isaac, two sons. Who was the promised son? Isaac was. And when was he circumcised? On the eighth day. What about Ishmael? When was he circumcised? When he was 13 years old. 13. What is Paul saying here? He says, I'm not like the Ishmaelites. I'm not like them. I'm not like them. Ishmael and all of his descendants who were circumcised in the 13th year. No, I go all the way back to Abraham through Isaac, the promised son who was circumcised on the eighth day. And Paul is also not like the proselytes, those who were not born Jews, but later in life converted to Judaism and had to become circumcised as a part of the ritual. As a part of becoming a Jew, they would have had to become circumcised. These proselytes, Gentiles, becoming Jewish. They would have had to go through that ritual. But Paul says, I'm not like them. Paul says, I'm a true Jew who had devout Jewish parents who had me circumcised on the eighth day. Which means he grew up in a Jewish home with parents who were faithful to the rituals of Judaism. For many people today, this would be like baptizing an infant. Being baptized as an infant and thinking that infant baptism somehow saves them. And there are many people today who do this. And there are many people today who think this. That I was baptized as a child and therefore I'm good to go. I'm getting into heaven. They think that their eternity is secure in heaven because of this experience that happened to them when they were a child. But listen church, that cannot save anyone. It doesn't save anyone. A true Christian understands that no experience saves them. Notice then after circumcision, Paul continues with his pedigree and he says in verse 5, of the nation of Israel. He's of the nation of Israel. Now as we just saw, he was not a proselyte, but he was born a Jew. But now he emphasizes that not only was he not a proselyte, but 
he wasn't even the son of a proselyte. That is, his father was not someone who was a Gentile who was converted to Judaism. You see, his father could have been a proselyte and then raised him as a Jew. But Paul emphasizes here that he has a pure bloodline. His bloodline is pure. He is of the nation of Israel. And for Jews, to be of the nation of Israel meant that you were in the circle of salvation. That's what they thought. That was their thinking. Born a Jew. Well, I'm set. I'm good to go. I'm in the circle of salvation. They thought that they were saved simply because they were born of the nation of Israel. Notice there, he says that he's not a Jew, but what does he say? He says, of the nation of Israel. It's very important for us to understand this. You see, at the time of writing this letter, as Paul is writing to the Philippians, at the time that he's writing, this term Jew was uttered by Gentiles as more of a derogatory term. Some people even use it that way today. As a Jew. Derogatory term. But here Paul doesn't say that he's a Jew. Right? He doesn't say that he's a Jew, but he says he's of the nation of Israel, which meant that he was an Israelite. That's how he identifies himself. I am an Israelite. And stating that he is of Israel or an Israelite would essentially be saying, I am a part of the privileged people of God. See, amongst the the Gentiles, they would say, oh, Jew using it in a derogatory term, but he says, no, I'm not a Jew. I'm an Israelite. I am of the privileged people of God. That's who I am. It's a way for the Israelites to boast. To boast in themselves. Paul says of the Israelites in Romans 9.4, to whom belongs the adoption as sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises. Whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ? God gave the Israelites the covenants, the giving of the law, the promises. He chose them. And then in Ephesians 2.12, he contrasts that against the, the Gentiles where he says this, Remember that you, Gentiles, were at that time separated from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But not the Israelites. No, not, not the Israelites. They were God's chosen people. They were the privileged ones. And yet Paul doesn't bank on his nationality for salvation. He doesn't bank on it. You see, there are many people today who think that because they're born into a Christian family, that automatically makes them saved. I often think of these people like a Costco membership. You walk into Costco and you just show them your card and all these people behind me, they're with me. They all get in too. Born into a Christian family. Good to go. 
But that's not how it is with God. It's not how it is with God. We aren't saved because of our Christian heritage or our Christian parents. And true Christians understand that they cannot bank on their heritage to save them. Well, Paul continues to move on and he says, notice he says, of the tribe of Benjamin. That he's of the tribe of Benjamin. Now he's getting more specific. Not only is he an Israelite, but he's of the tribe of Benjamin. Now who is Benjamin? Who is Benjamin? What importance would this, would this have in Paul's life? Well, if you remember reading in Genesis 35, Benjamin was the baby of the 12 boys. The 12 tribes who became the 12 tribes of Israel. He was the baby. He was the youngest of all the brothers. He was the last son then of Jacob. And he was born of Rachel. Rachel was his mother who was Jacob's favorite wife. Rachel was. Benjamin, in fact, was the only son who was born in the promised land. The only one of the twelve who was born in the promised land. The tribe of Benjamin also gave Israel their first king. Who was that? Saul. King Saul. He was from the tribe of Benjamin. And when God divided up the land, in Joshua 18 we read about this, and when God divided up the land, Jerusalem was originally in Benjamin. The city of Jerusalem was originally in Benjamin. One commentator says about Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin stood high in Jewish estimation. It had within its borders the city of Jerusalem and with it the temple. So it was regarded as a special privilege to belong to it. In fact, if you remember Paul's name before it was Paul, what was it? Saul. Some scholars believe that his parents may have named him after Israel's first king. Saul, who was from the tribe of Benjamin. And so Paul was not just from any tribe in Israel. He was from a very highly honored and respected tribe in Israel. But there's more to his pedigree. It doesn't stop there. He continues on. You want to know more? You want to know more of my achievements and how great I am? I'm going to tell you. Notice he says in verse 5, a Hebrew of Hebrews. He's a Hebrew of Hebrews. Now, we know that Paul was born in Tarsus in Cilicia, which was a free city in Rome. It's a Roman city. In fact, it was a pagan city. And so that's why Paul could say that he was a Jew, but also that he was a Roman citizen as well, because he was born in Tarsus, a Roman free city. But even though he was born in Tarsus, his parents maintained their strict Judaism, including the use of the Hebrew language. They spoke Hebrew, also Aramaic. They would have also spoken Aramaic. Now, there were many Jews who had been dispersed during this time. And so 
as they had been dispersed, they had picked up a lot of the Greek culture. Think about this. Paul's living in a pagan city, growing up in a pagan city. His parents are there. The Greek culture is all around them. And a lot of these Jews then who moved into these places when they were dispersed from Israel, from Jerusalem there, as as they go out, they would pick up then that Greek culture. But Paul is saying here, not me. Not me and not my parents. They didn't pick up that Greek culture. They weren't influenced by the Greek culture around him. But he was raised in a strict Jewish home. His parents kept the strict traditions and customs of the Jews, even though they were living in a pagan city of Tarsus. Paul also tells us in Acts 22 and verse 3 that in his early years, he actually moved to Jerusalem where he was educated under Gamaliel, who was the chief teacher of the Jews. And so if there was anyone who could claim to be a devout Hebrew, it was Paul. It was Paul. He was a Hebrew. His parents were Hebrews. And implied in this is that his whole lineage was Hebrew. A pure line that wasn't mixed with any Gentile influence. But listen, church. God is not impressed with Paul's pedigree. He's not. None of that can save him. None of that can save a single person. And Paul knew it. That's why he was so against the false teaching of the Judaizers who taught faith plus works. Dogs, evil workers of the false circumcision. Why are they dogs? Because they are teaching a false gospel, faith plus works. People today will say, well, my parents are Christians, so that makes me a Christian. They even go to church denominations. Well, my parents grew up Lutheran, and so Lutheran or Baptist or Methodist or whatever denomination or tradition it is, but none of that can earn favor with God. None of it can. No one can boast because of where they have come from when they stand before God. No one can. In fact, if there was anyone who could boast about their pedigree before God, it was Paul. Even more boasting than the Judaizers. But Paul, being of the true circumcision, not of the false circumcision like the Judaizers, but one who is of the true circumcision as a true Christian, his mind has been opened to the truth of the gospel and he knows that his pedigree can't save him. And so the mind of a true Christian not only denies personal pedigrees, but second, number two, the mind of a true Christian denies prideful religion. The mind of a true Christian denies prideful religion. Look at the next three achievements in Paul's list. Notice he begins there in the middle of verse 5. He says, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. 
As I said before, in those first four, Paul played no part in any of those. But with these last three here, he played a direct role in these. He plays a direct role in these. Then notice he begins there by saying, as to the law, a Pharisee. Now the law was the great pride of the nation of Israel. It's the great pride of the nation of Israel. God gave the law to Israel, and they had it in their minds that all things, including Jesus himself, must answer to the law. But no group of people within Judaism took the law more seriously than the Pharisees did. The Sadducees, we hear of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Sadducees were more lax when it came to upholding the law, but the Pharisees were very strict in obedience to the law. In fact, turn over in your Bibles to Acts 26. Hold your finger in Philippians 3 and turn over to Acts 26. I want to show you what Paul says here about himself in Acts 26 and verse 4. This is Paul's defense before King Agrippa. And in Acts 26, in verse 4, he says this, So then, all Jews know my manner of life from my youth up. How did they know his manner of life from his youth up? Because he was raised where? In Jerusalem. He went to Jerusalem when he was young, raised there, and taught under Gamaliel, who was the chief teacher of the Jews. Notice he says there, so that the Jews, they know my manner from my youth up, which from the beginning was spent among my own nation and at Jerusalem. Since they have known about me for a long time, if they are willing to testify that I lived as a, what? A Pharisee, according to, notice this, the strictest sect of our religion. That's who Paul was. Before he was saved. Turn over to Acts 22. Notice in Acts 22 in verse 3. Paul says this. I am a Jew. Born in Tarsus of Cilicia. But brought up in this city. Educated under Gamaliel. Strictly according to the law of our fathers. Notice this. Being zealous for God just as you all are today. In fact, he goes on in verse 4 and he says, I persecuted this way. What was the way? It's the church. It's the church. I persecuted this way to death, binding and putting both men and women into prisons. You see, Paul was a Pharisee who lived according to the strictness of the law. And these Pharisees were very religious people. Very religious people. They were the radical fundamentalists of their day where they read the law, studied the law, interpreted the law, and really tried to separate themselves from all other people. They were known as the separatists. They would separate themselves from the other people. In fact, this group, these Pharisees, they began in the intertestamental period, the time between the Old Testament and the New Testament, that 400-year period there, between the Old Testament and the New Testament. That's when the Pharisees began. That's when this sect began here. And they really started out as noblemen. They started out as noblemen who wanted to live in obedience to the law. And we would say, do we want to live in obedience to this? 
Of course we do, right? We want to do that. We want to live in obedience. And they wanted to live in obedience to the law as well. Noble men. But over time, they began to believe that it was their strict observance to the law that saved them. They were very religious men. They were the spiritually elite of their time. But they got to a point where they were so zealous for the law that they began to criticize and punish those who went against it. In fact, we saw that even with Paul, right? What did he do to the church? Put them to death. Persecuted them. This was Paul. A Pharisee. Now turn back to Philippians 3. Notice what he says there in verse 6. Not only was he a Pharisee, but in verse 6 he says, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. In fact, it was Paul who was standing there giving hearty approval to the stoning of Stephen in Acts chapter 8. He was giving hearty approval to it. In Acts 8 and verse 3 we read, But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, and dragging off men and women. He would put them into prison, persecuting the church. And why was he doing all this? Why was Paul persecuting the church like this? Because of his what? His zeal. Passion. He was a very zealous man. And what was he zealous over? The law. He was zealous over the law. You see, zeal can be a good thing. Zeal can be a good thing when it is accompanied with knowledge. With true knowledge. In fact, Paul says in Romans 10 and verse 2 about the Jews, he says, For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. And that's how Paul was living his life. He had a zeal, but it was not in accordance with the truth of Scripture. Not in accordance with knowledge. He was very religious. And he saw obedience to the law as the means of his salvation. He thought that the law was how he could earn his righteousness before God. In fact, Paul was so zealous that he says in Galatians 1.14, And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. Very passionate man. Very zealous for the law. But his zeal was not in accordance with what? Knowledge. With the truth with the proper knowledge of God and His Word. And so his zeal turned Paul into a persecutor of the church. And if these false teachers, these Judaizers, wanted to measure their zeal against Paul's zeal, they would take second place. There was no one more zealous than Paul. He had reached the top. He was among the religious elite, And he had done a lot to earn that position of Pharisee. In fact, Paul was so good 
that he raises the bar all the way to the top and shows these Judaizers what he had attained. In fact, notice what he says at the last part of verse 6. Notice what he says there. As to the righteousness which is in the law, found what? Blameless. Wow, Paul. You see, these Judaizers, they were trying to obtain a righteousness by upholding the law. They're trying to get right with God by keeping the law of God and being religious. Paul says that his external righteousness was so good that if anyone wanted to come and throw blame at him, the verdict would be read and it would be what? Blameless. Come on, bring an accusation against me. Bring it on. We'll find out what the verdict is. You know what the verdict's going to be? Blameless. Externally righteous. Now Paul is obviously not saying here that he had reached some kind of perfection. He wasn't perfect in any means. But what he's saying here is that externally he understood that if somebody wanted to come and throw blame at him, they wouldn't find any. Obviously, there was internal sin that Paul had, right? We know that. But if anyone wanted to look at his life on the external, on the outside, they wouldn't find anything wrong with him. Perfectly obedient to the law. Blameless. Now, look at that list. Look at that list. Paul is the model Jew, the model Israelite, the prime example of what it meant to live by the law. And anyone who thinks they can be saved by their works would look at that list and they would look at Paul and they would conclude what? Saved. There's a saved man. Look at how amazing he is, how good he is. And any works righteous Judaizer would look at that list and they would say, gain! He's gained it all! He's gained his salvation, in fact. That's how amazing this man is. But that's not what Paul is saying here. It's not at all what Paul is saying here. In fact, he is saying the total opposite. Look at verse 7. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as what? Loss. Stack them all up in the gain column. I look pretty good, don't I? Well, take all those things and throw them into the loss column. All of those pedigrees, those personal achievements, where a Judaizer would put all of those in the gain column, Paul takes all of those and he throws them into the loss column and he says, those things I have counted as loss. In fact, the Net Bible translates it this way. But these assets I have come to regard as liabilities. Notice that word 
counted there in verse 7. That word counted. That word counted there means to think, consider, or regard. To think, to consider, or regard. And it points to a settled determination in the mind. In one's thinking. And Paul used to think of himself as great, magnificent. He's gained it all. But now he thinks of all of that stuff that he has achieved as loss. It's all loss. This is not some riches to rags kind of story where Paul is thinking that he lost something. But the things that he used to hang on to are now nothing but millstones around his neck that would take him down to the depths of the ocean and destroy him. Think about what Paul went through when Christ saved him. And the blinders were were removed and the light went on. Think about all of his personal pedigree, his pride in his religion that he used to bank on to get him to heaven. What does he do? He gets rid of all of it. He throws it all away. And he sees it merely as rubbish, as worthless. It's all worthless. Why? Look at the end of verse 7. For the sake of who? Of Christ. For the sake of Christ. Because when the blinders fell off and his eyes were open and he repented of his sins and put his faith in Christ, he knew that he had gained who? Christ. And therefore, listen church, he gained everything. He gained it all. Because he gained Christ. And he knew that Christ was all he had. And he knew that Christ is all he needs. It's Christ. I've got it all. I need nothing else. I'm getting into heaven. Why? (laughs) Because I have Christ. I have Christ. And that's the mind of a true Christian. That's the mind of a true Christian. We realize and we understand that our pedigrees or our religious works will earn us nothing before God. Nothing. None of us will be able to stand before God and give our bio of all the things that we have done. And say, aren't aren't you happy, God? Aren't you glad I did all of that? It's all rubbish. The only righteousness that we can cling to is the righteousness of Christ that comes through faith in Him. That's it. And when God asks, why should I let you into my heaven? We will stand there and we will say, because of that man. Because of Christ. Because of Him. Why should you let me in? Because he paid for my sins. Because he died on a cross for my sins. 
because He paid it all. He did the work that I couldn't do because I'm a lost sinner. I've fallen short of the glory of God, but not Him, not that man. He did it all, and He did it all for me. That's all we will be able to say, church. It's not because of anything that we have done. And if you're here this morning and you have been trying to earn your way into heaven, I'm here to tell you this morning, stop. Stop. Change your thinking. Change your mind. Stop trying to earn your way into heaven because you can't. What must you do? Repent of your sin and put your faith in Jesus Christ alone. Come to Christ. Beg for mercy. And you know what He will do? He'll show you His mercy. He'll save you. Run to Christ. And if you do that, you'll have everything. You will have gained it all. Because Christ is all that we need. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Christ, our Savior, our Messiah, our King, our Redeemer, the one who did the work for us, who accomplished it all for us, who came and lived a perfect life, a life that none of us could ever live. And then, after living that perfect life, He went to a cross and He made the sacrifice, the payment for our sins, a payment that none of us could give because none of us are good enough. But Christ paid it all for us. And he rose again on the third day and he's alive and he offers life to all who would repent of their sin and put their faith in him alone. Father, I pray for anyone who is here this morning who's been trying to earn their way into heaven. Father, I pray that they would repent of that thinking, of that sin, and that they would fall at your feet, that they would run to Christ and cling to him for salvation that you, God, would remove the blinders from their eyes, that you, God, would save them, that you would be a merciful and gracious Savior to them. And Lord, for those of us who have been saved, we rejoice and we thank you because we have gained it all, because we have Christ. We thank you for Christ. We thank you for all that he has done to accomplish salvation for us. And we thank you for the security that we have in Christ. That you will never leave us nor forsake us. Thank you for being such an amazing, merciful, wonderful God to us. We love you and we praise you in Christ's name. Amen.